Our scripture lesson today comes from the Levitical Holiness Code, uh, Leviticus chapter 19. Let's share in God's good word together. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. Reprove your kinsman, but incur no guilt because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your countrymen. Love your fellow as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We celebrate God's majesty on the mountaintops and draw upon God's strength in tragedy. But most of our life is spent somewhere in between the extremes. Our lives are filled with ordinary time, the day-to-day and the in-between. How can we live our in-between lives filled with God's power and presence? How do we find God in our day-to-day situations? How do we meet God in the ordinary? Today we begin everyday faith, finding God in the ordinary. And sometimes in our ordinary life, extraordinary things happen, uh, both for good and in tragedy. And so when uh, horrific events like last Saturday, uh, a week ago, happened in Pittsburgh, um, we need to know how to respond. What do we do? How can we help? Um, We're not helpless, actually, in these situations. There are things that we can do and stand uh, with our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, our extended family, if you will. And so today, with the the wonderful help uh, and honor of Rabbi Harris having um, her with us, we're going to talk about Christian love for our Jewish neighbors. Um, As you may know, uh, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to look at what that uh, might mean for us today in our context. And then over the next uh, three weeks after that, we'll look at other ways that we live out our faith in the ordinary. And so I hope that you'll be uh, a part of us uh, here in November as we give thanks to God for all that God is doing um, and hearing God's call for us to live our faith out uh, boldly uh, each and every day. So as a way of, of giving us context for this conversation, um, you may or may not know this. Um, our, our church is made up of roughly uh, a third folks that came to us from other Methodist churches, largely out of state, moving to town. Uh, about a third folks from other traditions um, that are Christian uh, and background. And then we have about a third of our folks that have never been a part of a faith community whatsoever. And, and so you might not know that in the United Methodist Church, uh, we have actually guiding principles for Christian Jewish relations. Uh, these were laid out um, very specifically uh, in 2016 at our general conference. Uh, we have a, a conference that meets every four years um, that guides us and directs us in the way that we live out our faith as a global um, faith tradition. And so United Methodist uh, pastors and lay people from all over the world come in um, and they meet together for a number of days uh, and they pass resolutions about the way we are to be in the world. What does it mean to be uniquely a United Methodist Christian? And so as a way to to set um, sort of the ditches, if you will, for our conversation, I wanted you to know uh, some of the things that we believe as United Methodist about our relationship with the Jewish community. There are nine of them. If you want to go online and look those up, you sure can. But I want to share three of them with you very quickly. Uh, the first is sort of that hopefully you know already that there is how many gods? One. There's one living God, right? One living God in whom both Jews and Christians believe. One God. We're uh, monotheistic religions together. Secondly, then, uh, Jesus was a devout Jew, as were many of his first followers. Actually, most of his followers, almost everybody that we read about in our sacred texts are, are Jewish uh, by and large. Uh, There are very few people that we read about in in the Bible that aren't Jewish. 
Um, and so uh, Jesus was born to uh, Jewish parents, raised in a Jewish home, raised by a Jewish community, uh, had rabbis and synagogues and temple. Um, I mean, basically, Jesus grew up uh, in Israel um, as a Jew, 100%, lived it out perfectly. Um, we have the story of when Jesus was about 12 to 13, he goes to temple, right? And so um, we, we understand this, that the one that we follow, uh, the more that we know about the Jewish community, the more we know about the traditions uh, of both Jesus' time and of our time, it helps us understand uh, better how to follow and how to live into our life of faith. And then thirdly, Christians and Jews are bound to God through biblical covenants that are eternally valid. Okay, we both have uh, covenants. Uh, the Jewish community has different covenants than we do, uh, but both of those are based in sacred texts um, that we believe are coming from the same God. And so um, now uh, I want to move into what I believe to be my first sermon ever on Leviticus, right? Because this is a law book, right? This is like reading the law. And so um, Leviticus 19 um, goes perfectly with the sermon series. It's about holiness of life, of your everyday life. Now, and our founder, John Wesley, uh, in the Methodist tradition, would talk about there is no holiness without social holiness. There's no holiness without personal and social holiness. That all holiness is something that we do together. And so in Leviticus 19, we know that we never want to just pull one little text out of its context. And so, so we can't just use the love your neighbor as yourself, although that's what Jesus was quoting uh, most certainly. But it's, it sits in a larger context of how do you live your everyday life um, under God. How do, you, how do you live a sacred and holy life? Well, the, first of all, it all comes from God. Uh, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that sets the table for everything else that happens uh, in chapter 19. And you see, the, the important part of this is that God defines holiness, not us. God says this is right and this is wrong. This is what holiness includes and this is what it does not include. It is God's to do and then we receive that as people of faith from the text. How do we treat the poor? That's a good question. As how, how, we hear this all the time. Well, what, what am I supposed to do with the poor? Well, God lays that out in the Holiness Code in chapter 19. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, uh, don't reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick up the vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the who? And the stranger. Right? I, the Lord, am your God. Then, then other everyday life. Well, how are you supposed to treat your employees? Uh, one of the great fallacies um, in faith traditions today is that, you know, you do your faith on Sundays or Wednesdays or Fridays or however it is that you do it, and then you have your other life. No, 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 no. Our faith life is everyday life. And so it, it, Leviticus 19 actually lays out how are you supposed to treat your employees. Well, you shall not defraud your fellow. You shall not commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. If you have somebody that works for you, pay them same day. Right? Now, I know that many of us are, are set up on like two-week schedules or, or monthly schedules. That's fine. But the idea is that certainly if somebody comes uh, and does a service for you, you pay them right then. You don't hold the money so you can make a little more interest. You don't hold the money until it's convenient for you. If somebody does something for you, you pay them, and you pay them then. You have to be right and just with people, particularly if you're in a position of power. Now, are we like God in our treatment of the deaf and blind? What do we do with folks uh, that are utterly abled? Well, all the way back in Leviticus 19, it says that you shall not insult the deaf. No deaf jokes or blind jokes and no stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear God. The Hebrew word there is yadeh, a right reverence, awe, and respect uh, for God. So we treat all of God's children with honor and respect because that's who God is. 
Well, do we change our relationships when we're working with a poor person or a rich person? Well, Leviticus covers that too. It's, it's all in this everyday lifeness of our faith with God. It says, you shall not uh, render an unfair decision. Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kinsmen fairly. And that's a temptation for people. You, you see somebody that has a lot of means and uh, you hope that maybe they'll be your friend or maybe you can do business with them or if you're eating, maybe they'll pick up the check. I mean, who knows what? It, it's, it's easy to do. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. And then, uh, all of these scriptures have been from the Jewish Bible, but I want to flip over to the New International Version because I want you to hear this because I think it's quite pointed and I think it's right. Do not do anything that, say it with me, endangers your neighbor's life. Nothing, friends. We don't want to be a part of anything that even in that moment or in some subsequent time would harm our neighbor. We're not to have anything to do with it. And so principle seven um, of these United Methodist principles um, that are what every United Methodist um, sits under and believes and lives out, um, it says this, and it's important that we remind ourselves of what we believe in this season. As followers of Jesus Christ, we deeply repent of the complicity of the church, meaning church over all time, and the participation of many Christians in the long history of persecution of the Jewish people. The Christian church has a profound obligation to correct historical and theological teachings that have led to false and pejorative perception of Judaism and contributed to persecution and hatred of Jews. Right? And then it says this. I want you to read this with me because this is what, this is what we need to know for sure. Let's, let's read it together. It is our responsibility as Christians to oppose anti-Semitism whenever and wherever it occurs. It is essential for Christians to oppose forcefully anti-Jewish acts and rhetoric that persist in the present time in many places. So um, I want you to understand the, the import of this. Because United Methodists, clergy, and lay people from all over the world gathered in 2016. And they passed this resolution that all of us would, would understand this and believe this and, and live this out. Um, and if you've been Methodist very long, you know that we don't agree on much. And we can't pass much. Uh, but this, at least, we can come together and say, yes, of course. The, the, we shouldn't even have to talk about this, but we do have to talk about this because our world is so continually broken. And then if you continue on uh, in Leviticus 19, um, are we like God in the treatment of the alien, the stranger? Uh, at, the, at the end of the chapter, it says this, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. You don't take advantage of them. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your, say it with me, citizens. That's how you treat them. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. You see, when we live out our faith, it's, it's not something that's compartmentalized. It's every day. And holiness cannot be regarded as an optional luxury of a believer. That's what Walter Kaiser Jr. says. That's right. It's not, it's not optional. Because God is holy. God's people are to be holy by being like God in the world. To be holy is to roll up one's sleeves and to join in with whatever God is doing in the world, whatever that is. And so in our tradition, we, we know of this. It's all kind of rolled up into a very short saying of Jesus. Jesus is talking to a, a very learned scholar who's asking him about what is the greatest commandment. And Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19. And, and you may know this, that about two-thirds of the words of Jesus are all uh, Hebrew texts. He's simply repeating Scripture. 
uh, or things that his community would know. So Jesus boils all of this down um, to, to this instruction for us. Jesus tells us to love who? God and neighbor. That, that's what we're to do. And so I'm so thrilled and, and honored to have Rabbi Harris, um, who's going to have a conversation with us about how we can be neighborly. How do, how do we do this together? Will you welcome her? So Rabbi Harris comes to us um, as the rabbi of Temple B'nai Israel in Oklahoma City. Uh, she started in July 2012. Uh, she is only the fifth rabbi to serve that congregation since its founding in 1903. Um, that's quite something. Uh, rabbi Harris has her Master of Arts degree in Hebrew Letters and Jewish Education from Hebrew Union College, a Jewish Institute of Religion, and her undergraduate degree in Liberal Studies is from California State University, Northridge. Uh, Rabbi Harris's professional interests include teaching and interfaith relations uh, and learning to live the values that make the world a better place. Uh, Rabbi Harris, uh, she and her husband, Benjamin, live in Edmond and have, some, uh, have children, three wonderful kids as well. And uh, many, one, I've found out that many of, of the schools that your children have attended are schools that my children have attended. Um, so we have those things in common. Go Huskies. And um, uh, it's just a, a wonderful thing to, to have you with us. We are thrilled to have you. Um, thanks for coming up. Thank you. I appreciate it. That, those texts, the Leviticus texts, I feel like we could sit and just talk about those just, right. you know, for hours on end. Um, and one of the, the things that it reminds me of is this whole idea of why do we even have the holiness code? Mm. And religious, the, the job of religion is not for us to find the church or the synagogue or whatever that agrees with what we think, right? Right. It's the opposite <laughs> that we're challenged to change our natural instincts, whatever those may be to fall within the confines of what creates a holy world, what creates a world that's better, what distinguishes us from the rest of creatures, our relationship with God. So Leviticus 19 and love your neighbor in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses from a Jewish understanding, love your neighbor, we're commanded three times to love. We're commanded to love your neighbor, we're commanded to love the stranger, and we're commanded to love God. Those are the only three commandments relevant to loving that occur in Torah. Interestingly, love the stranger in your midst, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the eternal, your God. The injunction to love the stranger occurs at least 36 times. And so that's a mystical number in Judaism, and loving the stranger is sort of, it's kind of like hitting us over the head with it, you know, love the stranger. So what's the difference between the stranger and the neighbor, and what does that mean? The way that I teach these verses is that loving your neighbor and in the Hebrew, it's ve'ahavtet re'acha, and a um, re'acha, your neighbor, is the root word that means people who are dear to you, people with whom you hold fellowship, people who you know and really matter to you. So it's not, as you said, it's not that physical um, closeness, the person who lives next door to you. So the way that I take it is love the people who are like you, and for strangers, love the people who are not like you, and then love the eternal one. And that word love is a verb. So the hardest part, I think the hardest challenge in these verses about loving is to unpack, well, 
how do I do love? And as you said, the holiness code, Leviticus 19, tells us how to do love. And in Jewish tradition, the way that I teach doing love is to treat others with justice and mercy because that's how God loves us. So God loves us with a combination of justice and mercy. And then we are, therefore, to love others or to do unto others, if you will, with justice and mercy. And that's how we do love. Great. Awesome. So I tried to guess um, what questions you might have uh, this week. And so um, here are some. We'll start with these and kind of see where it leads us. Um, but you just go wherever you want to go. <laughs> okay. I'll try to stick to the questions. Sure. So, so what have you and your community been experiencing this week? Our hearts, of course, uh, went out to all of our Jewish uh, extended family uh, last Saturday. Um, and it is, it is difficult um, to sort of even begin to wrap our minds around um, those sorts of acts of violence uh, that are certainly not new uh, to your community. And um, so how are you all doing? So it's been rough. It's been a rough eight days. Yeah. Um, I'm sure as a pastor, you can begin to imagine if you had um, 11 funerals in one week. Yeah. Um, that's tough. Uh, every, everything around the conversation has been challenging. In my community, we have a Shabbat or a, a Sabbath, Saturday morning prayer group. Not prayer group. Also, we have that study group where we're studying something called Musar, which is ethics and ethical living and how do we day by day do this. And one of my teachers in that class, uh, our topic last month, this month, it takes us a long time to get through one chapter, next month is gratitude. And the challenge in Musar is to apply these ethics to anything that comes up. And so one of my teachers yesterday turned it around and she said, you know, the bad things that happen, the evil that manifests in the world, where we show gratitude is it teaches those of us who are inclined toward the good how to be. So when we face a heinous massacre, it shows us how we need to be to be good in the world. So one of the places that we've been in this past week is really, um, I think, almost not quite overwhelmed. I think that's too strong of a word and maybe overused, but humbled for sure by the outreach that we've received from the larger community, yourself and your church absolutely included in that, to expect to have, I don't know, 100 people, 150 people come last Sunday for this vigil and to end up with 450 people. Uh, who just wanted to be there to stand alongside us. That's been both humbling and encouraging about the manifestation of good in the world, that there is more good than evil, and we have to remember that. It's also been difficult in moments, for instance, our Sunday school classes, their um, tzedakah or their charity that they give, you know, a little bit, coins or dollar bills or whatever every week, and then it all adds up. Our educators have decided that it will be sent to Tree of Life or La Simcha congregation in Pittsburgh. And one of my daughters kind of looked at me like, seems weird to send them money, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I, I, because things like burial and all of that, those costs will be covered. I mean, the community sure. will make sure that those costs are covered. But I looked at her and I said, you know, it's going to be a while before they can go back into that building. And they have um, walls to fix and bullet holes to 
deal with, and they have to replace all of their carpeting and all of the places where there was blood. Right. And when you look around your beautiful prayer space and you imagine that kind of mm. devastation, it becomes very real. Right. So we have spent, we are on a continual vigilance of security and thinking about security. We've spent a lot of time locally thinking about that, talking about that, tweaking it, making changes, which we do on a regular basis anyway. This brought it home. Um, and then there have been a lot of tears and a lot of people who know someone who knows someone because the Jewish community across the nation is relatively small. Uh, we joke about three degrees of separation. So my good friend who lives in San Diego, her daughter is at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And you know, I spent over an hour on the phone with Myla talking about um, what her daughter is going through because she's there and what that means to be it, it, there and what it feels like to feel unsafe. Not necessarily because of being in a worship space, but unsafe because of immutable characteristics. I can't, I guess I could change that I'm Jewish, but I shouldn't have to change that I'm Jewish right. because we walk around with this identity. So wherever we are, when somebody walks into a room and announces that because I'm Jewish, I'm supposed to die, um, you could say that that can instill some discomfort. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what, what do you want us to know and, and how can we help? So one of the things that I've been thinking about is that a person does not wake up in a particular morning and say, today all Jews must die. Right. And then walk into a synagogue and shoot them up. Um, it's just not how it works. This idea of hate start somewhere else and whether or not it goes undetected I don't know but I can only imagine that there are small moments and small things that happen and that it's cumulative and over time and I can't speak about the particular case in Pittsburgh because I don't have any of those details of the investigation but I can speak about the way that almost every Jewish person that I know has encountered some form of anti-Semitism in our lives. And it might be very small, and it might be things that we learn to just ignore and to shrug off. It can be things that run the gamut from love your neighbor as yourself, and so somebody loves me how they think they would like to be loved, but in doing so is... Um, demeaning to my actual belief. I mean, sure. I, I can see from, for instance, the slides that you've put up and from my interactions with the Methodist Church in general that this doesn't apply to this community. But most of us have had the experience of a really well-meaning person who affiliates as Christian and who um, really genuinely wants to love us and does so by telling us that if we don't accept Jesus, we will go to hell. Right. Which is from a perspective of wanting to show love when 
I get it. Like, I'm concerned about you. Mm. But it demeans that that's not what my faith teaches. Um, so so from, from a loving perspective, all the way to the middle ground of ignorance, and then, of course, all the way to the other end of explicit hatred. And in that middle ground of ignorance, I'll use an example from um, one of my daughters who is currently a student at Edmond North High School. And in the last year and a half, she has encountered comments such as Heil Hitler, as a student was walking past her in the hallway. She has encountered during the time when they were reading Elie Wiesel's book, Night, which is a Holocaust memoir, she's encountered students making gas chamber jokes, which let there be no confusion or not funny to Jews. <laughs> um, she has encountered beautiful ignorance, and I say that honestly, beautiful ignorance, like students who genu genuinely have lovely questions and really want to understand, but then she has also encountered, oh, I didn't know that you were Jewish. If I knew you were Jewish, I wouldn't have made that Holocaust joke. Mm. And so in terms of how you can help, is I would say that when there's no Jewish person present, use our words as if there were, right. so that it's not up to the Jewish child to, to explain why that's offensive when if you knew that there, not you, but you know, right. you, a person, <clears throat> uh, knew that if there were a Jewish person in the room, oh, that might, that, that might be inappropriate. So when a child, my daughter, who's... Um, great-great-grandparents were murdered in the, in the Holocaust, she, she doesn't really find Holocaust jokes funny. Right, right. But when she's the only Jewish student in any of her classes, and it's on her to step up and to say, well, wait a minute, what about all of the times when it said that she's not in the classroom? And that's where I think loving Christians can really help us is to have zero tolerance for things that seem as if they're jokes, regardless of whether or not there's a Jewish person in the room. And when there is a Jewish person in the room, not to wait to see whether or not the Jewish person speaks up, because it's hard for the victim right. to speak up. It's easier to laugh it off with your friends. It's easier to just not draw attention. Everybody just always wants to feel good. And those are things that are not said on this far spectrum of hate. Those are things that are really said in this spectrum of just kind of ignorance and not thinking. And if we can take that middle spectrum of ignorance and not really thinking and redirect and retrain our brains, we won't get to that far spectrum of hate, at least not so easily or quickly. And the other thing, ah, okay, it goes with this. The other thing that I wanted to mention is in that loving and loving our neighbors. Most, if not every, um, good world religion has some form of what we call the golden rule, right? Sure. And you referred to it earlier, um, which we always say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right, right. And that's actually not from that. Let me tell you the Jewish version of the golden rule. Okay. So Hillel in the first century before the Common Era, so first century BC, 
he said something along the lines of, what is hateful to you, don't do to someone else. And I think it's a very subtle, very interesting little turn of words. Instead of loving someone how I want to be loved, don't treat someone the way that I don't want to be treated. And that very subtle difference is, I think, fundamental to understanding Jewish thought, where we try to leave open all these doors for people to do what they need to do for them and try not to close doors just because I want it closed for me, if that makes sense. Um, so, for instance, with an election coming up, how it, in a, from a Jewish perspective, we tend to think toward, is this going to shut down options? Like, can I still do what I need to do if somebody is... Um, well, is this opening up options or is this shutting down options? And if it's opening up options, it tends to allow other people to do their thing as opposed to only loving others according to my definition. I don't know if I'm being clear. Um, Can we go to the next one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what can we learn from one another at, at this time? We might say, what do we need to learn from one another? Uh, at this time? I think this time is the same as every other time and learning from one another is what we should learn. To listen to one another and to care about our different journeys, multiple paths to the same one God. All right. Very good. Uh, on Sunday, uh, Chantel and I uh, went down uh, to B'nai Israel um, to show our love and support uh, uh, to the community there. And uh, when we entered, uh, we received a rock that said, Love Matters. I did. That was my rock. Um, and I didn't know your daughter had, had painted it. Um, and I, I keep it with me now. It's, a, it's uh, on my desk every day, so I'll, it's a, it'll be a good reminder uh, every day as I begin my work uh, that what we do here matters. Our love to the world matters. Um, what does that mean to you, and why do you think it's so important? To me, it means that as people, we know that we're not alone, that when we love others, when we show out, when we do love, then as a human family, we're connecting one another to ourselves, and that really makes a difference. It makes a tremendous difference in how we can go forth with confidence and and knowing that we all are God's children, we all belong in this world together, that we do have what to learn from one another, and doing that love as, as you and Chantel showing up and other members of your church showing up on Sunday to be there for us, it matters. It makes us feel seen. It makes us feel appreciated, and it, makes, it reminds us that there are so many of us doing God's work in this world, and God's work will get done when we all do it in our various ways, but parallel. At the close of each um, sermon, we try to have action steps, like what, how do we actually uh, live this out? And so one of them is uh, I want Rabbi Harris to be able to go back to her community and say, you know what, we, we've got about 500 people praying for us. They told us that they would uh, this morning. And for her to actually see you and, and to know that that's happening, that it's not just something that people say or just, you know, thoughts of her, that she can actually look at you and go, oh, these are the people 
that are praying for me this week, um, praying for our community, praying for uh, those uh, going through funeral services this week in Pittsburgh uh, and all that more, those who are uh, having to recover the synagogue there uh, from all the terrible things that remain after uh, events like that. And so we, do, we want you to know that. Um, and then secondly, as we were working on this together, um, it is so important that we train up um, not just the children in our life, but ourselves uh, to speak up when we hear jokes uh, or racial stereotypes, really in any form, uh, because in, in some ways um, to put anyone down is to put um, down the creation of God. God created every person on the planet and calls us good, uh, looks at us and says, this, this is my creation. And so, um, I, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to also say this, that, that I'm not unaware of how difficult that can be. Um, uh, I grew up in a family where um, when things got tense or things got tough, I was either supposed to be quiet or a clown to make everybody happy. Um, And so as an adult, when I hear somebody completely off page, um, my first inclination is to really just kind of be like, well, well, don't engage with that idiot. Not you people. Um, but, you know, there's this thing inside of me that really wants to withdraw um, and, and not engage because my, my assumption is, and this is wrong, I'm, I'm just being honest here, is that I'm not changing them, right? I mean, the, the, like they're off page. They've been off page. It took them a while to get there. I don't know, you know, and, and, I, and I don't want to engage. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to get in that rancor that's so everywhere in our culture. Um, and so it does take... Uh, something beyond myself, uh, the Spirit of God, uh, holy boldness, the Jeremiah is burning in his bones, something uh, for me to overcome my humanness, to just want to shrink and go away from, from the insanity of that, um, to say, oh, oh, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, so, uh, well, I was just thinking, this morning with the, um, the kids' moment, the children's moment, research into bullying is so interesting, and it indicates that it's really important to be second. Mm. So when somebody speaks up, the trajectory of bullying amongst children changes when a second person speaks up. So it takes the courage of the first person. In Judaism, we talk about Nachshon being the first one to walk into the Sea of Reeds when the waters parted. You know, Moses wasn't the first one to walk in. It was Nachshon who had the faith to start walking in Jewish tradition even before the waters parted. To be Nachshon takes a great amount of courage, but the behavior is stopped and the bullying is redirected when number two steps up. So that's part of it, is yeah. the courage to be number one. It takes courage to be number two as well, but that changes everything. Right, yep. So I want, I want the congregation to know that I'm trying to be brave with you uh, around this, and we'll be brave together, uh, and we'll be ones and twos okay. uh, as, the Lord, as the Lord leads us. Um, and so um, before um, uh, we, we thank Rabbi Harris, uh, I want us to pray a prayer that... Uh, was posted on your website for uh, Tree of Life Synagogue and the folks uh, in Pittsburgh. And yeah. I'm not sure, um, this is also an acrostic. So oh. as, as we're reading it, sure it notice, is. it's Tree of Life, Pittsburgh, Tree of Life. Well, unfortunately, on the first, it's only Tree of Fool. Well, but it'll. Yeah. Right, no. So <laughs> it'll, I did, it'll make sense. Obviously, I didn't get it. When I was, when I was, so <laughs> so thank you for. As we go. Yes, we'll thank it. you. So, <laughs> so hang with us in the next slides. All right, let's pray together. Tree Tree of of life, life, revive revive our our souls, 
enrich our days, entreating your blessings. O God of peace, fill our hearts with comfort, letting your Torah shine in the fullness of our love. Faith in you, our God, eternal source of blessings, praying for healing in the depths of despair, thanking God for the survivors, thanking God for the first responders, sorrow crushing our hearts, bereaved beyond belief. United in our love, returning to you in faith, God of Israel, healer of generations, tree of life, redeemer of Israel, enliven this moment with healing, enliven this moment with hope. O rock of Israel, forget not the Jews of Pittsburgh, let your love flow in the days ahead, for justice and peace everlasting. All of God's people say, amen. Will you show your appreciation to Rabbi Harris? And now with the confidence of the children of God, let's pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.